0: Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. This is uh, called Mary's Magnificat. It's her, uh, her great song. It's Mary's song. So I have a good friend, a guy who I have um, just a tremendous amount of respect and regard for. I would say that of all my friends, this guy, when he prays, it's, it, they're, they're the most golden prayers do you, know, you have anybody like that in your life? When they pray, you feel like you're just raised up into the throne room of God. Well, that's, that's, that's my buddy. Um, great guy. Well, this friend comes to me one day, and he says, Brad, you're never going to believe this, but Mary spoke to me. Yeah, Mary, the mother of God, she spoke to me. He was in a Roman Catholic cathedral, and I think... You know, most Roman Catholic churches have some picture of or statue of the Virgin Mary. I think that Holy Apostles right down the road here uh, does as well, if I, if I remember correctly. He said, it was so strange. Um, she spoke to me from, from the image. And I know it wasn't my imagination. It was as real as you and I are talking about right now. My friend's a Protestant. He never before believed in visions of the Virgin Mary. And um, before anybody gets mad at me, I'm not saying that Mary talks to people like that necessarily. Although, you know, there is some precedent for people who have died in the Bible then to come back and speak. If you recall Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration... Moses and Elijah came and spoke with him. Now, I know that was Jesus, and you could say that's a special case and circumstance. It probably was, probably is. I don't know what to make of the situation entirely. What I do know is that we as Protestants, we, we have some strange hangups with Mary. Uh, maybe it's because we're so afraid of the Mariolatry out there, the worshiping of Mary, and maybe we're afraid of being too Roman Catholic. But honestly, we've gone to the other extreme, We've kind of thrown Mary out the door entirely. Think about it. How often do we actually talk about the Virgin? I mean, aside from what we say on Sunday morning in the Apostles and Nicene Creed, when was the last time you thanked God for the mother of God? See, we don't really really do that. When have we expressed gratitude for the work of grace that was in her life? She'll say in her song in just a minute as we read it, how uh, generations will call me blessed. How many times have you blessed God for Mary? Um, What I would like you to consider today when we listen to her, how she received the message from the angel and how she responded to it, what we have here is truly the, the Bible's greatest heroine. I mean, a model of faith and courage of obedience, and of commitment. A lot of people will look at the beginning of Luke's gospel and say, hey, this is the first Christmas, or this is the beginning of the first Christmas. But actually what we have here, we have the first Christian. She is the first Christian. Uh, She's greater than the first man on the moon, you know, greater than Neil Armstrong. She is numero uno, the very first believer The first to ever hear the message of the gospel and the first to to believe it so so beautifully. So let us read. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Mary would be a shortened form of Miriam. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary answered, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb that is, John the Baptist and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, magnificat is based on the first word here in the Latin, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you so much for your word. Please help me to speak clearly and please address each one of us this Christmas in the depths of our being. Amen. So here is a rhetorical question of a sort. Uh, What would make you celebrate wildly without any forms of inhibition? Perhaps it would be the good news that someone close to you who had been very sick was getting better and would be coming home soon again. Perhaps it would be seeing that the floodwaters which had threatened your home were going down or the fires were finally being contained. Perhaps it would be a phone call that you got the job offer or the great scholarship or the dream promotion. And what would you do in those instances? Well, you might dance around the room. You might text everyone you know and invite them to a party. Here's the thing. If you lived in a culture where rhythm and beat was just part of your cultural heritage, no doubt you would begin to sing a song And you would start, of course, that's not part of my cultural heritage, is it? You would start clapping your hands and stamping your feet and singing aloud. And here, I think, is what's going on. In Luke chapter 1, this Magnificat, um, you may know that this is one of those famous songs in all of Christianity. It has been often whispered in monasteries, uh, chanted in cathedrals, recited in small remote churches by Evening Candlelight, set to music by Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, Because of this, I think we get the wrong impression. Mary is this kind of northern European nun with her head bowed and she's chanting the verses, my soul glorifies the Lord. Is that your picture of her? Uh, No, that's not her. She is not like the front of our bulletin. Did you see her in the front of our bulletin? This northern European maiden with uh, light skin and, and light hair? No. Oh, no. She's she's most likely dark in complexion. She's a poor Palestinian girl. And she's an ecstatic girl. She's a teenage girl because they were betrothed around the ages of 12 to 15 to 16 teenage girl who is dancing and clapping and stamping her feet a lot better than i can do filled with ecstatic joy as she sings a song i want you to get that picture this is not the picture we normally have Um, she's a poor girl i mean a really poor girl Uh, probably dressed in poor clothing and where did she grow up where is she from She's from, the scriptures say, she's from Nowheresville. She's from Nazareth. You remember the story when Philip comes to Nathanael and he says, hey, Nathanael, you've got to come check this out. We have found the Messiah. And Nathanael says, tell me more about him. And Philip says, well, he's, he's from Nazareth. And what was Nathanael's response to that? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You betcha. The greatest man in the Bible, the Son of God, and the greatest woman in the Bible, the Bible's true heroine, both hail from Nazareth. So let's look at this song. Uh, This song is a song of pure joy. It is also a masterpiece of theology And mature spirituality, I would say to you, the Mary is a a theologian of the highest order, as we will see. Um, But let's look at this um, under two headings. The first is revolution. This song that she sings is straight up revolution. It is a, it's kind of like a first century protest song, a kind of first century "We Shall Overcome." Song, a song of revolution in the days of Roman occupation. Because here in the Magnificat, Mary's not only announcing a birth, she's announcing the inauguration of a new kingdom. A kingdom that stands in stark contrast to all of the other kingdoms, past, present, and future. All of the other kingdoms which rely upon violence and exploitation to to achieve their greatness. As one author writes, Mary declares in this song that God has indeed chosen sides. And it is not with the powerful, the rich, or the occupying forces, but with the humble, the poor, and the people on the margins. God is dead, has taken sides. And it is not with narcissistic King Herods, but with unwed teenage girls entrusted with the holy task of birthing nursing, and nurturing the Son of God. Uh, This is not entirely a new song. Hundreds of years before, if you remember back to the Old Testament and the song of Hannah at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, Hannah sings something very, very similar. In fact, it seems as though Mary's song is very much based and built upon Hannah's song back then. Um, And, Hannah sang her song when Samuel was born uh, and said, this unexpected prophet is going to bring about a great reversal in the world's order. And that is what Mary's singing about. The the kingdom's reverse. No longer do the Caesars and the Herods uh, rule in God's new kingdom. No, they are no longer the most important people. Instead, who are the most important people? They are... Poor fishermen from the Sea of Galilee, poor widows who give their might in the temple, uh, poor lepers who have their rotting flesh made baby smooth again, and blind beggars who cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Those are the first in the kingdom. I think we also need to uh, realize just how dangerous it was for Mary to sing the song. I suspect that if Herod, King Herod, uh, had heard this song of protest, protests, this song of revolution, that Mary's life would have actually been in danger. She, she, it, this song is a song that could have gotten her killed. He would hear the undercurrents of how this child to be born to her is a threat to his power and to Roman domination as a whole. Um, we, we sing about Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy? Um, it's a good thing to actually go through that song and find out and just answer all the questions yes and no. And, you know, she knew a whole lot more than I think the song gives her credit for. But one thing Mary definitely did know was that injustice would eventually be reversed. Mary alludes to the reversal of injustice that would characterize the Messiah's coming. And she talks about how the hungry will be fed, but the corrupt elites will receive no more. Uh, These are the same kinds of themes that are shown in the beginning of the book of Isaiah. uh, How those who are in charge of Israel, who are corrupt in their, their, uh, their behavior, the Messiah would right those social wrongs. And so that's what Mary Song points to. Her hope that Christ's coming would mean social wrongs would be righted and justice would be established forever and ever. And that God would win the complete victory over wicked regimes. Now, Shelton and I did not... uh, confer with one another before we got to the worship service today. But Shelton, uh, I was definitely going to give a long extended, and I am going to give a long extended uh, reading from Wang uh, Yi's letter, because if you want to spend 10 great, 15 great minutes of your life, get onto, the website is faithwire, all one dot com, and look for Wang Yi, because this letter of protest. It really is that. It's a letter of civil disobedience. It's been translated into the English. It is, it is so much like the Magnificat. Um, he declares that, quote, uh, I respect the authorities that God has established in China, and I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. In other words, I submit to corrupt rulers but I'm warning them. And that's what he does. He warns them with such boldness and also with compassion. So, listen to this as he writes I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and most horrendous evil of, the Chi- of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians. It is also a sin against all non-Christians. For the government is threatening those who are not Christians and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth, there has never been a thousand-year government But there has been a 2,000-year church. So in mercy, I warn you, those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Jesus. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting and actively imprisoning me. So Christian friends, I say to you, pray that the Lord would use me and that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I may take the gospel to them. And to the authorities, I say this, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. You are capable of doing all of these things, but stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands. For why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? I say to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant and I am in prison because of this. I will resist, this is the last line, I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Maybe I forgot to just mention that the reason he's protesting is because the Chinese government came and told them that they must stop meeting as a church. And he said, I won't stop meeting as a church. Absolutely not. As I read Mary's Magnificat, as I read the birth stories about Jesus and the other Gospels, I cannot help but conclude that though the world may be tilted to the rich and the powerful and the communistic and the Islamic large portions of the world, God is tilted otherwise. God is tilted toward the underdog pastors and the underdog peoples, to which Mary says, you better beware. She's, I mean, she is so bold. You better beware because the revolution is coming. Not a revolution of sword, but a revolution of God's power and mercy God will bring down the rulers from their thrones, she says, but lift up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Look down with me at verse 34. As I said before, Mary is the Bible's greatest heroine. She responds to the angel Gabriel's message very differently than Zechariah responded last week. Zechariah, if you recall, was kind of bumbling, very distrusting, even though he was a priest of Israel. Nevertheless, he didn't have a deep and abiding faith. But here, Mary responds with a legitimate question. It's not a faithless question. She says, she's not, says not how can I be sure, but how can this be? She is a virgin, so it is, it's a reasonable question to ask. How can this be? Gabriel is glad to give her this gentle and reasonable answer. Using the most discreet language he knows, he describes how the Holy Spirit will come upon her, and how the Most High will overshadow her. And the word he uses there. For the Holy Spirit's uh, work is the same word that is used in, in the very beginning of the Bible when it says that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters of creation. There's a sense that there is a, a, a new creation, a brand new beginning of the Bible that is happening in Mary's womb. And while that sounds like, for me, Pastor, incredibly cool biblical theology, to a teenage girl, how do you think that sounded? Scary! It was really scary, really scary. Um, imagine your teenage daughter comes to you and says, Dad, I'm pregnant, but it's all good because it was God. <laughs> You're like, how's that going to go over with you, te- you, you fathers, with your teenage daughters? I mean, her dad is going to be furious. Her betrothed husband is going to be furious. We read later how Joseph was going to divorce her. Um, remember that they lived in a shame and honor culture and so if you were if you were stamped or imprinted with shame you would carry that with you for the whole rest of your life that could shame in a, in a small uh, Palestinian village could completely ruin you as a woman economically socially you've got the scarlet letter but I mean it would have been even worse than than Hester Prynne. I mean, it would absolutely ruin a woman. Um, it would be the equivalent of somebody, a doctor, coming to us and say, "I'm saying I'm sorry, but it's cancer," because it really was like terminal cancer. And so God is calling her to a very hard road, a very scary road, a very difficult road. And yet, look at her response in verse thirty-eight. That this is like verse thirty-eight is the conclusive proof. That this woman is the greatest of heroines. Look how she responds. She says, uh, Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Only that's not exactly what she says. Uh, Our English translations kind of soften it and call it servant, as is here, or I think the the King James Version, she says, Behold, I am the Lord's handmaiden, which sounds really nice. but in, in reality, the word there, the word means slave. She says, behold, I am the slave of the Lord. She's affirming that she is not her own. Don't overlook what a big deal this is. When, what Mary is doing in verse 38 is she is surrendering her rights, her hopes, her dreams, and yes, her own body. She is surrendering her own body absolutely to God and saying, it is all yours. So beautiful. All right, as we get to the close of the sermon, let's head up in a hot air balloon and try to see maybe the big picture of theology that God is doing in the virgin birth Um, Again, we'll go back to the beginning of Genesis. Remember, humanity's story begins in the Garden of Eden with God fashioning Adam out of the dust of the earth. We might say that the dust of the earth is the clay that God took in his hands and used to craft the first human. Well, the virgin birth is telling us that, again, there's a new beginning to the story. In this new beginning, instead of using the dust of the earth, God is using somehow, mysteriously, the substance of the Virgin Mary. Uh, Mary's womb, Mary's humanity, Mary's clay. She is the clay. And God is from that forming the new man, the new Adam, the the new Jesus, the new humanity. Um, It's really quite awesome when you think about it. It's a sign that the Garden of Eden is kind of here again, symbolically, in the womb of the Virgin, Mary. Okay, we're still up here, if you're following with me. Uh, So one of the themes of the book of Genesis is you have these long genealogies where uh, Adam gives birth to a son. Um, We have Adam becomes the father of Seth. Seth becomes the father of Enosh. Enosh becomes the father of Canaan. Each of these sons, they're born and each of these sons die because each of these sons are made in the image of their father. Again, the virgin birth tells us there's a new beginning to the story. Um, Instead of the monotony of born in the image of a sinful father and therefore you're a sinner and therefore you go on into sin and die. Instead of that, you can see how the virgin birth interrupts all of it. We find for the first time someone who is not created in the image of Adam, but he's created in the image of who? Of his father. Of his true father. And so... um, you know, there's a new hope. There's a beautiful new hope. Star Wars has got nothing on this. There's a new beginning. And this is the greatest biblical theology I can think of. I I truly wish that this kind of theology um, stirred us so that it made us want to stand up and clap our hands and stamp our feet and sing real loud because this is, is, is the... Um, is the substance of true and eternal joy, <laughs> is it not? Amen, it is. Two things I want to leave you with. Number one, uh, how would Luke know all of this personal information? Like, how would he know all, all the, the nature of the conversations and how the song was written? Um, the beginning of Luke's gospel actually tells us I didn't touch on this very much in the first sermon in our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. But it says that Luke went on to interview um, many eyewitnesses to the events that he records. You get the feeling that for him to have known this, he must have gone and interviewed Mary herself. Something also I failed to mention in the first sermon is he dedicates his book to a guy by the name of Theophilus. Who is... Theophilus. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. Well, we don't know much about Theophilus. His most excellent title suggests that he was a wealthy governmental official, perhaps. Um, uh, perhaps he was the one who commissioned Luke to write the, the, uh, the book, Luke and Acts, because the op- Theophilus is at the beginning of, of the book of Acts as well. So it's quite possible that Theophilus was the patron who basically funded the research project for Luke to write the gospel. So one of the things that we find, or we will find in Luke's gospel, is Luke's gospel is the gospel of the poor. We see it in Mary's Magnificat. It's the gospel of the poor, but it's financed by the, by the rich. Without the financial backing of Theopolis, Luke would have never been able to travel around the Roman Empire and interview the respective people and spend all of that time doing that. Um, but 2,000 years later, uh, we now have, because of the, the, the generosity of Theopolis, we have the largest contribution to the entire New Testament the gospel of the poor that is financed by the generosity of the rich. And, brothers and sisters, What about us? Uh, We should always remember the poor, but especially now, like in this season, when our Savior is born to an extremely poor and oppressed woman, and he himself is a poor man. He spends the first few years of his life as a refugee in Egypt. We must remember the poor. Um, How much money are you going to spend on your friends and family this Christmas? And how much money are you going to spend on the poor? The Gospel of Luke really calls us to, uh, to consider those questions. And then finally, I want to focus on the word magnify. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And you know how the word magnify can be used in uh, two different senses. Uh, what is she using to magnify the Lord? We magnify through A microscope. A microscope takes something that's very small and makes it rather big. Um, It takes that little ant and makes it look like a dinosaur. Another way that we magnify is through a telescope. It takes something that appears to us to be very small and shows us the actual size of of it. It shows us what, what it really is, the bigness of it all. And so the question is, um, What kind of magnification is Mary using? Is it the magnification of a microscope? Or is it the magnification of the telescope? What do you think? Um, All right, all in favor of microscope. (laughs) All in favor of telescope. I think it's a little bit of both. I think, of course, I would say that, cheater! (laughs) Cheater! i think it's a little bit of both the astounding irony is that in her womb and the sixth week of pregnancy the son of god was an embryo no bigger than an apple seed like you would need a microscope to see him in week seven of mary's pregnancy god almighty was no bigger than the size of a small grape in week eight of mary's pregnancy God Almighty, the Holy and Magnificent One, was about the size of an average strawberry. And yet we know, uh, and the image I've used before on previous Christmases, is what she was carrying in her womb was like a blue whale. <laughs> Only it was, it, was, it was infinitely more than a blue whale. And, and so I think there's that strange element of microscope and telescope where we're look again and we're seeing the small and seeing how big it is and then we're looking at the greatness of God and she says he is holy he is awesome he is magnificent he is and she just recites these attributes of God and it's the greatness of God that they uh, just ignites her imaginations um I think the greatest line from, our whole pa- from the whole song is found in verse 37. And if you'll look there, and I'm, I'm finishing right now. Verse 37, she says, in, re- in response to all of this, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. If we only could get that into our hearts this morning, nothing is impossible with God. Like our wildest imaginations can't conceive of the glorious possibilities that no matter what we're facing, whatever hardship, whatever trial, whatever spiritual darkness, whatever difficulty, if God has done this with a poor teenage Palestinian girl, nothing is impossible with God. Will you say that? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. Because Christ is born of the Virgin Mary. Amen.